You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And before we begin reading, I just need to reorient us in where we are. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We call that series The Good News. And the vision that we've had for this whole series, you've heard it repeated many times if you've been with us, it is that now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark presents that as this through line throughout the whole gospel of Mark. And it's, and it's something that Pastor Ben and our elders want us to have as a conviction, a real thing that drives us and that we believe, saying now is the time, there's an urgency here, now is the time to share the good news of who he is. He is, as we see in the Gospel of Mark so far, he's the promised, anointed Savior King. He shows time and time again that he has authority to miraculously command the laws of nature and physics, to command sickness and death to just leave. He, has, that he shows that he has the power and authority to evict demons from their human hosts with just a word. He makes absolute claims in his teaching, teaching about God, about God's kingdom, how to enter it. And as he teaches, he puts himself on the same level of authority as the Old Testament prophets, even as the same level as God himself. He calls himself the Son of Man, which for the biblically uh, very, very literate out there is the name of the divine Savior King from the vision, the final vision of the prophet Daniel. He calls himself the Son of Man. And everywhere he goes, these amazing things cause people to say, who is this man? Mark says it over and over again. They marveled at him. They marveled at his words. They were astonished. They all ask, who is this man? That's where we get that urgency to say, there's something you need to understand here. You need to come to an answer to this question, who is he? Now is the time for us to tell people who he is. That was the main theme, especially of the first act of the book of Mark. Mark's gospel is sort of broken up into three acts like a play. Um, And the first act was especially that theme, the crowds, everyone being astonished and confused as to who he is. But now we are in Act 2, and we've been in Act 2 for some time, and the main theme here is the disciples now, they understand who he is, but what does it mean? He's the Messiah. They understand that he is the Messiah. He's the promised, anointed, Savior, King. What does that mean? So first it was mainly crowds who were confused. Now we see story after story in Act 2 where Jesus' closest disciples, the 12, don't seem to understand even the most basic things about what he's teaching. They know he's the guy. They know they've got the right guy. He's the one they've been waiting for. They know he was sent from God. They know that they want to understand his teaching, but they cannot seem to wrap their heads around it. And every time that he teaches them something about the way that the kingdom of God operates, it seems the exact opposite of what they're expecting. It's backwards. It's upside down to them. It baffles them. And so, our text today is no different from that. Let's read it together. We're in Mark chapter 10. We'll start here in verse 17. And we'll read our whole text this morning. Read along with me. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. 
Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So in here, what is this teaching that baffles the disciples this time? Let's spell it out. We're going to answer the rich man's question and then also help to sort out the disciples' confusion. And we're going to do both those things as plainly as we can. But in order to do that, we're going to need to hop back and forth a little bit between those two scenes of him talking to the rich man and talking to his disciples. So if you haven't already done this, it'd be very important, especially today, that you grab a copy of God's Word somewhere near you. There's usually one on, on the ground in front of you or in a, a pocket there. Or if you brought one or it's on your phone, ask somebody so that we can stay together, because we're going to do a little bit of bouncing this morning. So what does the rich man want to know? What's his question? If you are in the habit of marking up your Bible, underlining and highlighting, and, and doing little bits of uh, personal research on your own time, even, even if you don't, consider doing it here, um, consider underlining these phrases I'm about to give to you here for more study later. Verse, in verse 17... And also in verse 30, underline eternal life, inherit eternal life. In verse 21, underline have treasure in heaven. You can circle it, highlight it, I don't care, mark it in some way. <laughs> uh, verse 23 to 24, or 23 and 24, enter the kingdom of God. In verse 26, be saved. All four of those phrases, in all the different times that they show up, they're describing the same thing. The most common name that we have for it in, in modern Christianese, we call it salvation. Being saved. And one of the reasons it has so many names, so many ways to describe it, is because it means so much more than just you go to the good place when you die. That is, that's true. That is part of it. But there's so much more that God accomplishes that he intended to accomplish 
in salvation than just going to the good place. And God's people have been trying to figure out what all of this has meant for generations before Jesus shows up and begins to clear all of that up. And so for your own soul, for your own understanding and appreciation of the gospel, of the good news, go home some other time this week, this month, whenever it is, next time, maybe even years from now, next time that you come through this passage and you remember those different places you underlined and seek out the different wording there and describe to your own soul what it means to inherit eternal life, what it means to have treasure in heaven, what it means to be saved, saved from what, saved for what, saved from whom. Answering those questions will be nourishing to you. That's just a bonus. So there's a reason that I've chosen uh, a fusion of those words to describe it here and to answer the rich man's question. We'll phrase it this way, how to inherit the kingdom. And we'll answer that question in three parts. Here's the two sections of the sermon today. How to enter the kingdom, answering the rich, rich man's question, that's three parts. And the core truth from that, the big idea from the text, they're equal in, in substance, but the one I want you to walk away from this sermon with today is the big idea from today's text. It's this, forsake everything else and pursue Jesus. He is better. That is the kernel of truth that we're going to take away from this text this morning. Forsake everything else and pursue Jesus. He is better. Now, answering that rich man's question, how to inherit the kingdom? First, admit your lack. This account of the rich man, it's a very, fairly a famous story in the Gospels. So much so that it's kind of developed its own title. Your Bible might even say it in a heading that is above verse 17. That's not original language. That's just the, the editor of your Bible, just to make sure you know that a, a scene is changing here, and they, they put a title on it. They might even put the words, rich young ruler, right above that, or maybe the rich young man. But if you'll notice, if you skim through this, this account that we just read, Mark does not say a single word about him being young or that he was a ruler of any kind. The only detail that Mark gives is that he's rich. So even though we can be certain that this is the same man from the parallel stories in the other Gospels where he's described as a young man, a young ruler, a person of authority, even though we're certain it is the same person, Mark doesn't include those details. So we're not going to make too much of them here this morning. But we can learn a lot of other details about the way this man approaches Jesus. We learn a lot about him by the way he approaches Jesus. First of all, the text says that he ran. He ran up to Jesus. In first century Israel, dignified men didn't run in public. If you are in this time period and you're out in the street and the corner of your eye you see someone running, you can make a bet that it is either a child, because children run and play and that's what children do, or it's someone who's in the working class who is maybe running late for some appointment or a delivery for some job. Their livelihood is at stake. They need to get there on time. Or it could be a bond servant, a slave, literally running an errand for their master. They need to move quickly. Or maybe, on a rare occasion, uh, a criminal running from the authorities, perhaps. But if you are influential in the community, if you are rich, you don't run. Other people run for you. 
you are dignified in that way. But this man, this rich man, ran to Jesus to ask this question. This isn't like he's mildly curious about some theological topic, and so he sends a messenger to Jesus with an invitation to a fancy lunch so that they can have a stimulating intellectual conversation about it as equals. No, he had a burning question about the security of his own soul. And it seems he couldn't get a satisfactory answer from anyone else. He couldn't get it from his own study of God's word. He couldn't get it from other teachers. And he hears that Jesus of Nazareth, this wise new rabbi who was rumored to be the Messiah, rumored to do miracles, rumored to be sent from God, this man is arriving in town. And so he runs to him to have him answer this question. Now, I imagined a few details there. But the text strongly implies that there is urgency here. He's serious about this. Serious enough to make a bit of a fool of himself and not care who sees. It also says that he knelt before him. If running was not normal for dignified, influential men, falling to your knees and bowing to someone is unheard of. If, if him sprinting over there didn't turn any heads, the sight of his expensive road being pushed into the dirt under his knees definitely would have maybe caught some people's attention. There's humility here, too. This is not the false humility like the Pharisees and scribes who would say something like, they would call Jesus rabbi and then immediately try to trap him or embarrass him with a theological riddle. This man does seem to revere Jesus, to respect him. And he seems to genuinely believe that Jesus might be the one who can provide an answer to this burning question. And then lastly, let's not overlook the fact that he ran to him. He goes to Jesus here. By this point in Jesus' ministry, the rumors have been swirling about who he was, and there was also widespread understanding that the religious leaders had consistently rejected him. If you know anything about Jesus in the history in this time period, you know, oh, he's the one that keeps getting into fights with the, with the Pharisees and with the scribes. It's entirely likely that choosing to bow before Jesus, this man is taking a huge risk. The risk of greatly offending all the other religious leaders in his town, in his own synagogue. And he does all of this for the purpose of asking the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Something you need to know here, the title good teacher, that is not a known form of address in this time period. Nobody talked like this. We can't find it in any writings at the time. No one used this form of address. This was not just him being extra polite. It's not as simple as saying, good sir. He is going out of his way here to make a claim of moral goodness, supreme moral goodness. That's, the context makes it sound more like, oh, perfect teacher, oh, holy one. Jesus responds in an interesting way. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, did you immediately hear that and be like, what? Because <laughs> it sounds like Jesus is saying, don't call me good. I'm not good. God's good. That's what it immediately sounds like when you first hear it, but it's not what Jesus is saying. He's not denying being God. He's clarifying something. He's saying, you do realize that you just called me God, right? We're clear on that, right? Okay, cool. Here's God answering your question. You already know the answer. Obey God's law perfectly. You must be holy as I am holy. That was God's plain answer to this question throughout the entire Old Testament. 
How do you be right with God? Follow his law perfectly. And that answer drove the faithful Israelites throughout the generations, drove them to their knees. Why? Because it can't be done. No one can uphold God's perfect standard. Yet that was the answer they were met with. How do we draw near to you? How can we be one with you? How can we be your people? Obey my commandments. We can't do that, not perfectly, not as well as you do. The best and holiest of the Old Testament heroes were complete train wrecks. Abraham, selfish liar. Moses, murderer, coward. David, King David, prideful, hot-headed, adulterer. These are some of the best of the best. Every time God's people wandered off into sin, following other gods, God rebukes them, he chastises them, and he calls them to repentance. And the generation comes back to him. They, they offer proper sacrifices in the temple again. And for those who truly had faith in the Lord, those sacrifices were saying this, we can't keep your law. We want to, but we can't. We repent of our law-breaking. We want to be with you. We want to be made right with you. And we know this sacrifice doesn't fully make things right between us, but we trust you when you tell us that you will make a way for us to be saved somehow. Have mercy on us. So when Jesus tells this man, when he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, follow the law honest person of faith knows is impossible. He is teeing the rich man up to give the right answer. What is his answer instead? He says, yes, I know. I've kept the law perfectly, but I still feel like I'm missing something. What do I need? What else do I lack? And Jesus responds by saying, here's the thing you lack. Go sell everything, follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. So Jesus sees that this man does not get it, and then does the most loving thing possible in this moment. He exposes the root of this man's problem. This is one of the most tragic stories in the Bible, if you ask me. Here's a man coming, running up to Jesus, the Savior, running up to God himself. And this man is desiring to do the right thing. And he's humbly asking what to do. And then fast forward a few moments later, and he turns his back on the only hope he'll ever have ever was. Because he doesn't want to admit that he was wrong. And he doesn't want to give up any of his stuff. This is tragedy. This rich man was blind to his own neediness. Because of, in part, his great wealth, he couldn't see his own lack. The first part of inheriting the kingdom is admitting your lack. And before you can admit it, you have to see it. Someone has to show it to you. And then God needs to turn the lights on, give you eyes to see it, and then you can admit it. The way Jesus shows this man his lack by commanding him to sell everything he has 
people can have a tendency to take this out of context and to teach that Christians should just never have any wealth of any kind. We should all just sell everything and wear potato sacks and live in the caves and monasteries. Um, that is taking things out of context here. Uh, this is not, the context here is not Jesus sitting down with his 12 disciples, giving them the expectations and rules for how to live. This is Jesus talking to one man, answering a specific question for a specific purpose and revealing his kingdom. And what is that question? The question is, what else do I lack? And Jesus' answer is, you lack neediness. You lack an understanding of your own lack. This man was not searching for what Jesus was offering. He was searching for the cherry to put on top of his mountain of achievements and treasure. Jesus is instead lovingly showing him that what he thinks is a pile of treasure is actually a heap of garbage. Your wealth is not enough. Your attempt at law-keeping is not enough. Your good behavior is not enough. Your good reputation in the community is not enough. You don't meet the standard of perfection which is necessary if you're going to be accepted by God on your own merits. You're not enough. This man's story is recorded for us in Scripture, not, just, not because his situation is special and unique. I believe it's recorded because his situation is tragically common. This is very popular line of thinking. Even today, I am a dad now. Uh, a dad twice over, and I have noticed that the ads that the algorithm has chosen to give me on Facebook are a little different from when I was a single young adult in college. You're laughing already. Um, I used to see ads for surfboards, mountain bikes, dating apps, exciting things, I guess. Now I am seeing hair loss supplements, probiotic yogurt, mom blogs, Lots and lots of mom blogs, and many of these mommy social media influencers share encouraging messages, and that is great. And there are lots of Christian versions of these, and, and they post scripture, and they post watercolor graphics with an encouraging saying, written in a very swirly, swoopy, cursive font that is difficult for me to read. And, and that is well and good, usually. But there is a saying that I have seen gather a lot of traction. I've seen it lots of places, even in lots of Christian circles, and it is dropped without comment, and it says, you are enough. The mommy blogs will often say, you are enough, mama. And what I think they mean, in charity, what I think they mean is, you can do this. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't compare yourself to other moms who had this all together. Be encouraged. That's what they mean. I hope that's what they mean. That's not what they say. What they say is, you are enough. End of sentence. And it makes me pause. Because I hate to break it to you, but you are not enough, mama. None of us are. And it's not just the mom blogs. Not to pick on them. This phrase has spread very far. People are using this phrase without context because it just it sounds so nice. So nice to the difficulties of this life. But the only context in which this actually makes sense is in a worship song. Your heart can sing, you are enough, Lord. Because he is enough. 
He meets his own perfect standard of holiness, and he's the only one who ever has or ever will. And he offers himself freely to satisfy every need for his people. He is super abundantly more than enough. You, however, are not enough. You need him. This is why we, we, we organize our prayers so often in the pattern of, he is worthy, we are needy. We repeat that over and over to ourselves to remind us of this. We are not enough. We need him. I, I googled the other day, you are enough t-shirt, and it would have taken me all day to scroll through the results. There are literally thousands of options, just of t-shirts, let alone mugs and, and posters and you name it. And it's especially gained traction in the LGBT community, where in that community it basically means no matter who disapproves of you, you are perfect just the way you are. You never have to change. You are right. Everyone else is wrong. I saw one, a t-shirt. It had a rainbow, and then it had this phrase over and over and over and over and over again on the shirt. Almost as if they were trying to get themselves to believe it, even though their conscience tells them it's not true. They have to, have to keep drip-feeding it into their minds that their conscience testifies against them. It does not feel good to stomp on a pleasant-sounding slogan like this, or rather, I should say, it should not feel good. What I am not doing here is giving you all ammunition to go online and correct people and, and impress them with your theological knowledge. But it is true that without any context, this phrase has dangerous implications. In most cases, it's just a lie. But it's a lie that our sinful flesh lie that helps to make you blind to your spiritual neediness. It's a lie that this rich man desperately wanted Jesus to tell him. Jesus then explains to the disciples why the rich man turned and walked away. He says how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then they just stared at him. Because in the disciples' world, the holiest people in the community, you can see them from a mile away because they are the wealthiest people in the community. The religious elites, the synagogue officials, the scribes, the teachers, they were all usually quite rich. Men who knew the scriptures got honored the most in Jewish community. And it's a wonderful self-fulfilling cycle because they have so much money, they don't need to work. They can sit around and just be more learned about the scriptures in which they get even more accolades and praise and money, which gives them more time to sit around and inflate their heads. And Jesus instead says, if you're wealthy, you're going to have a much harder time entering the kingdom of God. And that does not compute for them. So Jesus repeats it. And then he gets extreme here. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying there? He's saying, generally, that people who don't see their need for a savior very rarely cry out, Lord, save me. People who have all their earthly needs met have all the comforts and pleasures that they could ask for. People who have great power or influence, they're in danger of being blind to the fact that they don't measure up to the standard of a holy God. It's because their money can buy them a lot of false hope. Jesus is almost sharing a statistical truth with them. It, 
is just a fact that not many wealthy and powerful people end up following Christ. I mean, just think about this in our, in our lives. How often, how frequently do you hear about famous Hollywood actors coming to faith in Christ? You can maybe name one or two, and those are just, you hope, because they've said some Christian things, and you hope it's real. Celebrities of any kind, not many. It generally doesn't happen. Their position in the world keeps them deaf to the message. There are not many churches being planted in the back rooms of the Screen Actors Guild. But Jesus reminds his disciples, though, that with God, all things are possible. So these people are unlikely candidates for the kingdom because of how filled with self they are. But you do get a Kirk Cameron story every once in a while. God can save. God can save. But in general, it is difficult for the wealthy to enter in. And he doesn't teach it here, but the opposite is true as well. People who have nothing, people who are starving and homeless and broken and weak and abandoned and lonely and desperately sick, those people have a prime opportunity to enter the kingdom of God because most of them now know that they have nothing to offer him. The gospel spreads like wildfire in poor villages in Africa and in Asia. What have you heard about the underground church in China and in North Korea? They're oppressed. They have nothing. They have no hope. And so when someone comes in and shares the good news of hope in Jesus, so many of them are ready to grab on tightly. I mean, how does Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not simply saying, blessed are people who are sad. He's saying, people who know they are spiritually impoverished. People who know they have nothing to offer God and come to him with empty hands. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They inherit the kingdom. They are saved. They have treasure in heaven. Friends, does this describe have you? Have you ever realized that without the Lord intervening, you are spiritually impoverished? You have broken God, God's commandments up and down, and you have racked up an infinite debt of sin, and you can't pay it. Has God ever shown that to you? Have you looked that dead in the face? call yourself a believer, but you've never seen yourself as a needy beggar coming to him with empty hands, I fear for you. Because this is the core of the gospel, the foundation of it. If instead, you've just tried to live a good life, and you just want Jesus to bless you at the end. That's you. Poverty, your great lack. Only God can show that to you. Believer, have you started to fall for the empty encouragement that you are enough? Do you act like you think you are enough? Do you act like you have it all figured out now? Or do you daily throw yourself at the feet of Jesus in prayer and say, Help me, Lord. I am not enough. You are enough. 
redeemed me. Inheriting the kingdom always has to start with admitting your lack, but what happens next? What happens next is give him everything. Let's go back to Jesus' conversation with the rich man. When Jesus tells him to sell everything and give it to the poor, he's doing a lot of things, but he's drawing attention to the fact that this man does not uphold the law as perfectly as he says he does. The whole second half of the Ten Commandments are summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And if God himself looks you in the eye and says, give everything you have to the poor, help the needy, and then you refuse, have a hard time proving that you love your neighbor as yourself. But that's not the only thing Jesus was doing. He was not, this man was not just told to sell everything, and that, but he was also told to come follow Jesus. And I honestly don't know which one was harder for him to hear. He refused to love his neighbor as himself in the way that Jesus told him, but he also refused to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the summary of the other half of the Ten Commandments. Even if he had sold everything, which clearly was impossible for him, but even if he had sold everything, it would not have saved him. John MacArthur put it this way, you don't get saved by lowering your bank account to zero. You get saved when you turn from your idols and worship the one true God. This man refused a direct offer from the Son of God to come and personally follow him. Believers in the room, how many times have you daydreamed about getting to be in a disciple's group? Walking with Jesus, listening to hear him teach, watching him perform miracles, sharing meals with him, just being with him, hearing his voice. We would do anything for that opportunity because he's our God. He's our everything. That's, that is our entire blessed hope for the future in heaven is being with him having all of the sinful self left in the past and only being in perfection with him forever. But for this man, the call to follow Jesus, for this man and for everyone, the call to follow Jesus is first and foremost a call to stop following whatever false god you're currently following. And for this man, his idol of choice, his god of choice is money. He could not see all the comforts and pleasures that it can provide for him, his false god could never truly satisfy him. He did not realize. The reason he was haunted by that sinking feeling, that feeling in the pit of his stomach that he couldn't shake, that there's still something missing, something I still lack, he didn't realize that it's because the foundation of his life was a house of cards. He couldn't see how empty and pointless and hollow his false god was. He couldn't see his lack could not even consider trading it for all that Jesus offered. But I want you to reflect now. The moment that you saw your lack, believer. The moment that God showed you how empty your idols were. How unpayable your sin debt was. Running to Jesus and giving everything to him was the immediate, obvious next step. Consider it this way. When someone... In, in America, when someone declares bankruptcy, they are announcing publicly, this is part of public record, that they have a debt they cannot repay. 
they admit their lack. And what usually happens next is you go through the courts and legal proceedings, you sign away the right to everything that you own. Your house, your family heirlooms, your car, all of your possessions, everything is on the table. It is typically not enough, even close, to actually pay the debt back. But it all gets sold. It all belongs now to the creditor, the one who you owe this debt to. My friends, giving everything to Jesus is just the natural next step after declaring spiritual bankruptcy. If he has agreed, and he has, to pay the infinite price of the penalty of sin for you, there is nothing that you have that is off limits to him. He gets it all. He gets your money, yes. You own your money, and he owns you. He gets it all. He owns it all. And any wealth that you have, any, anything that you own, all of it is to be stewarded for his purposes. And you say, yes, Lord. He gets your time. You realize that every breath that you take is a borrowed breath, and you no longer want to waste it on yourself. You commit to using the time that he's given you to bring him maximum glory. He gets your relationships, all of them. You're a representative of the true and living God now. You're being transformed into the image of Jesus. You're his hands and feet. You're the way that he gets things done in this world. You're going to live out your relationships as he commands. You commit to that. You say, yes, Lord. He gets your plans, short-term and long-term. He did not purchase you out of slavery of sin just to allow you to continue to circle the drain of selfish ambition. You don't live for you anymore. You gladly live for him. And he gets your heart. He gets your affection. Nothing and no one even comes close to rivaling the love that you want to have for him now. In fact, you come to realize that he's the source of all love, and all of your other loves are downstream of this one. And your love for him came from his infinite love for you first. You realize that. And you realize that he rightfully deserves your utmost devotion, your utmost worship. He gets it all, friends. All of you. Nothing held back. You resign forever from the role of being your own God. You're a lousy God anyway. You give that title to him forever. You gladly do all of this. You gladly sign your whole life away to him. You vow to be his forever. You're his bride, church. Now, do you do that perfectly? Absolutely not. Break those vows so often that it makes you sick. But you belong to him. And he does not lose that which is his. Every time that you try to sneak back up into the driver's seat again, he gently rebukes you, lovingly restores you. Like Doug preached a few weeks ago, even though we are an unfaithful bride, he does not sign divorce papers in some occasions. He's committed to us. We receive the Holy Spirit and we rely on him to make more and more faithful actions in accordance with our commitment to him until one glorious day we will be with him in heaven and we will love him purely as we are. 
rich man asked, how to inherit the kingdom. We look this morning to provide a clear set of instructions, if you will, from what Jesus teaches here. First, you have to see and admit your lack immediately. After that, you must give your whole self to him. And then finally, receive true abundance. After Jesus explains to the disciples that even though it's uncommon for wealthy people to realize their lack and turn to the Lord, he reminds them that nothing's impossible with God. There is no demographic of person out of the reach of God's saving love. I mean, look at Paul. God will dropkick you off your horse with a blinding light and a voice from heaven if he so chooses. There is no one who, because of their demographics, is outside of God's reach. Never give up praying for people to be saved. You serve a powerful God, far too powerful for you to give up in prayer. But even though he has commanded this man to sell everything, we've established that the amount of money in your bank has no bearing on whether or not you're a real believer. That's what Jesus is hinting at here, saying nothing is impossible with God. He can save Caesar if it's part of his plan. He doesn't necessarily have to force him to sell everything in order to do it either. But you can tell the disciples what to do. Uh, Peter, who is often the mouth that blurts out what the rest of them are quietly thinking, he says, well, we've left everything to follow you. We didn't even have much, but we gave all that we had to follow after you. If the rich can be saved and still be rich, why did we have to give everything up? What reward will we have? I'm paraphrasing and elaborating here, but I think that's the gist of Peter's confusion and question. Let's look at Jesus' response here in verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers, sisters and mother and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. In reading that, he said a lot of things and repeated a lot of things, but you probably get the general point of Jesus' response here, and the general point is, it will be worth it, Peter. You will get an abundant return on your investment. You will not regret spending your life following me. It's that treasure in heaven idea again. Following Jesus may cause you to lose physical wealth and experience physical persecutions. In fact, it probably will. But heaven will be worth it. And that is true. But there's more to what Jesus says here. Don't gloss over this. He says, There's no one who has left house or brother, sister, mother, father, children, or lands for my sake, who will not receive a hundredfold. Get this. Now, in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is not just treasure in heaven. This is not just the future promise of eternal life, even though that would and should be enough. There are two parts to this promise that Jesus makes, and one part is for the here and now. He says, if you sacrifice something for me, be it a relationship or your earthly treasure, if you suffer loss of any kind because of me, you will, guaranteed, receive back a hundredfold of what you lost. You'll get persecution too, but you'll get a hundred times more than what you lost. What? 
That, uh, that is a very specific promise that Jesus makes here. How in the world can this be true? Well, for one thing, Jesus is not a liar. And so we, since we don't see this hundred times math working out in real life very often, we can imply he's not speaking a hundred percent literally. But this is for the here and now. So what does that mean? For example, I know a missionary personally who donated his house, gave it up, his only house. He lives in a van now. He donated his house to become a training facility for evangelists. And he has not suddenly been given the deed to 100 houses, nor does he expect to be given the deed to 100 houses. He lives in that van, and he travels the country, and he spends his entire life preaching the gospel to crowds in the streets. The term 100-fold is used in Scripture, and it was often used in the first century, century in general to mean exceedingly more, maximally more. Jesus used it in the parable of the soils, saying the seeds that fall on good soil yield fruit, some tenfold, some thirty, some a hundredfold. The purpose of that parable is not the exact number of fruits. It's about the abundance of the multiplication. Abundantly more is what it means. So Jesus is saying if you suffer any kind of loss for my sake, you will find that what you receive in this life, not just in heaven, but in this life, it will be immensely more valuable, abundantly more valuable than what you gave up. Even if, let's put some meat and bones on this, even if your brother, your family, completely cuts you off because you follow Christ, they act like you're dead. You will find in your true family, the church, will find a whole band of brothers who know and love and relate to you on a deeper level than your blood brother ever could because you share in the same salvation you share in the same eternal treasure you share the same eternal destiny if you lose your job and your house because you pro proclaim christ and that doesn't happen too often in america yet but it happens every single day to believers in communist china if you lose everything and become homeless for the sake of the gospel when not if, when a member of your church takes you in from off the street and you sit on the mat on the floor of their living room, the love of Christ pouring out of them will cause you to feel more at home and more satisfied than you ever would have in your own house without Christ. That empty house can't provide that for you. That empty wealth can't provide that for you. Those empty, godless relationships you used to have, they can't provide that for you. Jesus can, and he will. You will not regret the loss of anything for his sake. And you can be certain that God will provide. Psalm 37, verse 25 says, I have been young, and I am now old. Yet I have never once seen the righteous forsaken children begging for bread. If you are his, made righteous by the blood of his son, even though you suffer hardship and persecution, you will never be forsaken. You will never suffer true lack. Even if you lose everything you have, you will always have what you truly need. You will always have enough because you will always have him. Jesus. His worth outweighs the whole world. summary statement of the upside-down nature of the 
many who are first will be last. And the last first. He teaches this in several other places in the Gospels. And it's, it's, a, simpler, it's a simple reminder that wealth, social status, and human merit and achievement, they amount to nothing in God's kingdom. The only thing, and I mean the only thing that matters, answer to that question is Jesus. And you can be rich in this life or you can be poor. But neither of those matter at all in God's kingdom. That's why the first question in our catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? We're not our own. But belong, body and soul, to God. The big idea from God's word today is this. And it's something I want you to take home with you. Forsake everything else and better. When you are tempted to devote yourself to some other God, build the habit into yourself. Preach to yourself, Jesus is better. When you're anxious over your financial situation, preach to yourself. Remind yourself, Jesus is better. When you find yourself trying to set up your own little kingdom, preach to yourself, Jesus is better when you're tempted to chase after hollow earthly pleasures. Jesus is better. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.